Hi, William. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I love your writing and newsletter. I've loved your writing for some time. I'm really honored to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. So I was born outside of Chicago. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid because my dad worked for Amico, which was then bought by BP in, I think, 1998. So I was like nine years old. Um, and by the time I was 13, I had lived in like Chicago suburbs. I'd lived in Michigan, Colorado, and Maryland. And like in this era, I pretty much ate what I would describe as like the standard white American diet. I don't know if that's offensive. Uh, <laughs> uh, my mom, like, love her, and this is no disrespect because I do think she is a good cook, but I think her style at the time I would describe as very, like, cooking light magazine. So mm -hmm. at home we ate a lot of, like, lean chicken breasts and pastas and, like, you know, things were very much, things that were very much of that the trend of that time where people feared fat and stuff like that and we were on the road a lot so we actually ended up probably eating more wendy's and chick-fil-a than my mom would like to admit um, <laughs> and kind of then later at places that my roommate very colorfully last night described as fancy hospital food places like panera and um later like you know, chains like Carabas and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. In Maryland, my mom ran the concession stand for my swim team. And we had all this bulk candy around from like Sam's Club a lot. So my brother and I would sneak in the closets and get nerds. <laughs> and I think we, I would sum it up as like, I think we ate like a very commodity diet. Like we ate a diet that was very much like indicative of the way American life is set up if you don't live in a city. Right. Um, and I think I was a bit of a picky eater. Um, but B after BP bought Imico, they moved us to England in 2002. And overnight, the way we ate completely changed. Um, we moved to this town called Esher, which is just a little bit outside of London in Surrey. And we lived off this high street. And suddenly we had access to all these um like small family-owned restaurants lebanese nepalese greek thai chinese which was very different than the chinese that we had had <laughs> in america indian you know when i think about it, it was pretty seismic um suddenly i was eating things like hummus you know which now is i think more common but you know i think at the time was not in America. I think this is like pre-Sabra. Um, and I was eating like Nepalese dishes, like like Palungo Sog and Gurkha Alu, and just like things that I, you know, just had never even fathomed uh, prior to moving over there. Um, we ate a lot of Nepalese and Lebanese. We ate a lot of Middle Eastern uh, food and a lot of Asian food. Um, and then being in the UK allowed us to travel a lot. So we would right. go to like Morocco and Egypt and Spain and Jordan. And it, I think because it was so fast, it kind of like really opened me up and made me intensely curious about food in a way that I just had not considered before. Mm -hmm. Suddenly there 
were all these new um, ingredients. There were new spices. There were vegetables I hadn't even heard of or seen in my life. Um, there were cooking methods I hadn't heard of. Um, we started kind of knowing the people that would be making the food um, because these were smaller restaurants and it, um, you know, you would, you would see the same people every time. Um, it became such a different, more like expansive experience in terms of the types of food we were eating, but then also more intimate experience and in that we, we started knowing the people who were making our food. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, as I got older and moved back to the States, I realized that so much of this was really about access. Mm -hmm. We could just walk up to the street there and there were grocery stores, dozens of restaurants. Maybe only one of them was a chain. We lived in this town where there was this cluster of access and diversity of cuisines and food. And outside of major cities, America just really isn't set up that way. You know, everything is so commodity based. It's all about size, scale and efficiency which ultimately, you know, kind of sucks the diversity out of places that aren't major metros and you have to drive everywhere. And um, it becomes really difficult, I think, for a lot of people to break out of this like big box bland food. Um, I don't know if that's harsh, but it, <laughs> I, the way we me. ate like this game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that kind of completely changed, I think, the direction of my life moving over there and honestly, majorly through food. You know, I mm -hmm. think if we hadn't moved over there, I don't know who I would be, where I would be and what I would be eating, but certainly not, I think, what I eat now. Right. Was um, that a, cult a culture shock for you to, to move from the U.S. to the U.K.? You know, it's hard for me to say. I think I... I really didn't seem faced by it. And I don't know if that's me having like a selective memory, but I don't ever recall being upset um, deeply. Um, I, you know, I honestly felt like we lived in Maryland before that. And I really felt like an outsider. Like I, mm -hmm. I knew I was gay at the time I was in the closet. Uh, Maryland boys were very like, Eminem and like you know using the f word a lot and I just sort of uh -huh. knew instinctively that that was just not the place for right. my family and certainly myself like I I don't know if I ever articulated that I needed to get out of there but I think there was like the sense of like you know this can't be forever uh and I think moving to England and being in a, a city felt like really instinctually right uh in, in a way that I hadn't articulated yet at that age. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't difficult. We had moved around so much too. I think I was also just so used to it. Um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, how did food become kind of the focus of of your work, you uh, working for Rock of Chocolate now, you know, was that interest there before or, or was it something that has um, kind of evolved with you? Yeah, I, I think like, so there was a point in high school when I was living in the UK where I 
wanted to eat better and I was convinced that I could get off my ADD meds if I ate better. Um, I actually cannot trace the seed of this. Um, and I remember like wanting to eat salmon. Like I think I had read that like omega-3s would, you know, be good for my brain. And I was, I've always been on ADD meds. I currently don't take them um, because I just find that they like, you know, um, kind of neutered me. I feel like a zombie on them. I feel like a capitalist cog. Uh, and, you know, they certainly make me more productive, but I sort of, I miss like the more sort of spastic side of me. I feel like it's part of me and helps me, uh, at least creatively. So I was always trying to look for ways to, you know, not take the medication. Um, and so I wanted to cook salmon and my mom was like, no, I'm not cooking salmon. I don't want to cook fish in the house. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm doing this. And I had part-time jobs. I was a lifeguard. I was a hairdresser's assistant, barista, movie theater, custodian. So I had money. So um, I just started going up to this um, grocery store in the UK called Waitrose, which maybe I would liken to like a union market for New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. um, and I started buying salmon. <laughs> I started buying salmon. <laughs> And then I started buying vegetables. I started buying fruits. Just the fact that I could go to the grocery store by myself um, and make my own food decisions at like, you know, 15 was like crazy for me. And I, I started almost completely eating independently of my family, like with my family, but eating like my own way. And it was kind of liberating um, and exciting. Like I could decide for myself what I wanted to eat every day. Um, it felt very independent. And I also started, you know, I had to learn a lot about food. Um, mm -hmm. And so I would just pick up, you know, any vegetable I wanted. I remember the first time I tried parsnip and my mind was blown. And I was like, what is this? This is so good. And I would cook lentils and I would get all sorts of different fruits. Um, I can remember the first time I had a persimmon and in England, they call it Sharon fruit. Mm -hmm. I was buying like goat milk and even back then they had oat milk. So it's just really curious about everything. I wanted, I, it, I felt like I could try anything and I wanted to try everything. Um, at the time, um, green and blacks was such a big presence. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, they were a big deal. Uh, like this first certified organic fair trade chocolate. And um, I was more of like a candy kid. Um but I, I just felt this pull to try dark chocolate. I think it was like me just, you know, I was feeling really adult, like cooking for myself uh, and eating dark chocolate, I think felt more adult. And I was like, this sounds fun. And I was really intrigued by it. Um, it was also Divine at the time. I think Divine's still around. Um, and so I started just eating a little bit of dark chocolate every day. And I didn't question it that much other than like, you know, I felt like a lot of people probably feel now or felt before you know maybe they got into like single origin or craft chocolate which is that like oh fair trade you know this is good my work is done I've been good I did this right um but when I w moved to California for college and found Taza um you know I saw these like direct trade labels and um you know, they had a single origin bar from Bolivia and it was stone ground and it was gritty and it had this amazing texture. And 
my mind was just completely blown. I was like, what is this? This is wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was, this was, has been kind of a cycle for me forever. I just like try something and I'd be like, this is wild. I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. Um, but chocolate was particularly interesting to me once I had that Taza bar because I started learning about how it was made. And I, I really saw it as this really fascinating way to look at the world. It's such a uniquely human food. It's mm-hmm. a flowering fruit tree. Um, these tiny blossoms grow these massive, huge alien egg-like fruits. And then we take the seeds of those fruits and we ferment them, we dry them, we ship them across the world, we roast or we don't roast them. We winnow, grind, mill, temper to the point where we have this shiny confection with far more flavor than the raw material had. And, you know, very little has been added. We've just coaxed it out. It's really amazing and, like, wonderful in the real sense of that world. Um, But once I started reading about direct trade through Taza and started understanding more about the chocolate supply chain, I also realized that it's a really unjust food, um, which I think anyone sees once you just kind of peel back the wrapper, you know, no pun intended. Um... (laughs) It has this incredibly inequitable supply chain. It's a poster child for a colonialist food. I mean, you can really look at cacao and chocolate and you'll see colonialism at work um, back then and now. Um, and, you know, I got, I got pretty into trying to find like new chocolate bars and understand um, the market a little more I guess it was pretty instinctual you know I just once I had the Taza bar I just was like wow chocolate is really cool and I want to understand more about the supply chain and and what people are doing to make it better and when I moved to LA after college I got in the habit of going to stores that I couldn't afford like farm shop and spending like my meager paychecks on like Eskinozzi dandelion <laughs> and Rocka bars this was like 2013 so I think you know it's you know, I'm always like, why are we still being this cruel to one another? We've built these systems so large and so powerful that people are either oblivious to their roles in them or feel powerless to try and stop them mm-hmm. or rely too heavily on markets to fix them. And I don't think markets can fix them no. completely. Um, they haven't. <laughs> They've had a lot of opportunities to. Um, and so, yeah. I guess I feel like this is kind of like a lifelong challenge. I'm not sure how long I'll be in chocolate for. I do really love it, but um, I do see it as part of um, my independent artwork as well in the sense for like trying to get people to see this commodity item very differently and for what it is, which is really kind of in one way very magical food that we've made as humans and like with our imagination and technology but also like we've done it really wrong in a in a major major way and it's gonna take a really long time to make it right and a lot of collaboration and imagination and I I feel pretty stuck in it (laughs) (laughs) stuck in chocolate or stuck in the you know the supply chain <laughs> well i guess both and in, in the and stuck i feel like implies i'm like i'm a prisoner uh-huh. i'm enjoying it you know like mm-hmm. i 
I, I'm enjoying the challenge of trying to get people to think about this differently and really think about the way that they're consuming it and have an appreciation for it that's genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, and understand that, or, you know, try to not feel suffocated by not being able to feel good about even a craft chocolate purchase. You know, it's right. still like the bare minimum. There's yeah. a lot of work that needs to be done and, you know, join in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, did you, was your background in photography? Um, you mentioned your, your artwork. So how, how did that, you start kind of working in photography and specifically, you know, using your artistic skill around, you know, chocolate, but also now apples? So I majored in film production. I thought I wanted to do film my whole life. And that's why I went to college in Orange County. Um, When, you know, I enjoyed film school. I love all the friends I made. Um, Unfortunately for me, I had a boyfriend for most of it. And that was my first boyfriend. And I pretty much stopped paying attention to the things I wanted. (laughs) Uh, And when I graduated and I ended that relationship, I was like, wait, who am I? I don't know if I really want to do film, mm-hmm. like professionally. I love it. I, and I, I love, you know, thinking this way, like narratively and, and through images, but I just don't know if I want to spend my entire life trying to be a director. I just didn't feel right. Um, and so I was pretty confused. I hadn't acquired any real technical skills um, in the time. Um, Not to say that it was all a waste. Um, And I felt pretty aimless. So, I mean, that was part of my reason of moving to New York was just like, man, I got to figure this out. And another expensive city sounds like the place to do it. Um, I think I just needed, you know, I needed to be like shook up, um, but also have access to things, which, you know, New York can offer that. And, um, I didn't, I hadn't practiced photography before. It hadn't even occurred to me that I might like it. (laughs) Um, You know, like I just didn't know myself that well. Um, And I picked it up like basic out of necessity. Like I took this job at Raqqa and I really didn't have any real sets of responsibilities. And I would just kind of, you know, do whatever people told me to do. And also was trying to look for ways to, become essential to this small company that didn't have a lot of capital and I felt super expendable. A lot of this was my own insecurities. So I was constantly looking for things to learn to become essential uh, or, you know, just needed in some way. And I remember we had one of my responsibilities was building these wholesale catalog sheets for the sales team in Adobe Illustrator and we had this photographer that we were working with who did these white seamless photos for us and I had gone on the shoot with him just to assist um, um, and it kind of, it looked cool to me I liked I, I was like wow this is fun and it seemed this is very arrogant of me <laughs> but it seemed easy <laughs> I was like I feel like I could learn how to do this um, and I, it took, like, this is a long story, but it just took forever to get the photos from him. I forget why, like, he had, like, a, a thing, and I was annoyed, and the sales team was like, Bill, we need this wholesale sheet. And I was like, well, I don't have the photos yet, so I can't finish it. And I just felt all this pressure, and, like, it was such a stressful experience for me because I was, like, so new to the company and 
internalized it so much that I was like, I have to figure this out. I can't rely on anyone. I have to be able to do everything all myself. This is such a ter- terrible, stubborn attitude. Uh, but it forced me. I, I, I remember I texted a friend who I knew was a photographer. And I was like, hey, I want to learn this. Can you help me? I'll like pay you and I'll, I'm going to rent a camera. Let's figure this out. And so he taught me how to take white seamless photos. And um, from there, I was like, my imagination just kind of exploded. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I could like save some money and get a camera and I could just do this for Raka and I could be good at my job. (laughs) Uh, And uh, that's how it started. And, you know, basically a year later, I had bought a light and was, you know, doing this kind of product photography for Raka and it was really working well for us and I started getting a sense for style and I just started devouring other photography um which I had liked before but again I just hadn't I hadn't looked at it that way it was just more something that I enjoyed um and still enjoy but I hadn't really like studied it um and about a year into that I was like I really like this this is scary for me. Uh, the fact that I like this so much, maybe I should do something for myself. And I, um, I would just start to see things in images and, and, and the styles of photos that I was taking. And I remember one day I had gone to the farmer's market and I bought a pink pearl having, um, known about it before and was sitting there and eating it like in the park. And I just kept seeing, um, like, a lot of pop cultural images and colors and like hearing music. And it just, I just got a vibe and I felt really compelled to take this photo of a pink pearl mm-hmm. in this style that I felt like I hadn't seen before. And so I just did it super instinctually and it was very fun. And I just kept doing it. I had no real plan. I just was like, wow, this is, I could do this for like so many apples. I, I have all these ideas now and I just started doing it really instinctually and it, it just became a a thing. (laughs) Uh, And I started to kind of articulate later what it was that I was trying to do. Um, But yeah, that's kind of like the, the long slash short story. (laughs) Well, how do you go about um, finding so many apps? Like basically I'd like sort of the photography thing has the Apple thing kind of, led to you becoming like kind of an expert in in apple biodiversity (laughs) so and like and also then how you know what's your process for finding all these new apples yeah so you know i i got introduced into apples i got introduced to apples in (laughs) the uk um there was this british apple called egremont russet um that's still my favorite to this day that i came across when I must have been like 15 or 16 and I started doing, you know, my own grocery shopping. Um, and I saw this gold potatoy looking apple sitting in a box at a store that, you know, everything there was like very considered and purposeful. Like it was a high end grocery store. So to see this apple that did not look like all the other perfectly polished apples and even fruits in this store I was just like what is this and it's like it had this name Egremont Russet I was like (laughs) it sounds like a 
a, a lord or something like that, like British loyalty. So I just was so curious about this thing. And I just kind of took it on a whim and bought like six of them. I was like, it's got to be good, right? Uh, with a name like that and looking, you know, so against looking, you know, not like a supermarket apple, not perfectly polished and shiny, but rusty. I was like, it has to be tasty. So I bought a bunch, ate it on the way home. Not all of it, one. <laughs> uh, and it really blew my mind. Like the, I just was tasting this intensely nutty and dense apple that reminded me of chestnuts and warm apple cider from when I was a kid in Michigan. It was just such a intense experience. And I was like, wow, what on earth is this? This is so cool. And I immediately went home and Googled it. Cause I was like, I have to know more about this. And I, through that, just went down this rabbit hole of learning about apples and their heterozygous nature and how they don't grow true from seed. And so if you plant an apple seed from, you know, a Granny Smith, you're not going to get a Granny Smith. You'll get something that has some similar traits, but new traits. And I just found that so mind-blowing. Um, and so, I mean, it kind of stopped there. Like, I would read about some apples, but I, it's still, like, I lacked accessibility to them. So, mm -hmm. and, you know, that got much worse in California, although I did um, get into Pink Pearl there since that is a Californian apple. Um, it was developed by this botanist called Albert Eder um, in Humboldt County in the 40s. And um, that, that blew my mind again as well because it's pink inside it has this translucent yellow white flesh and this you know often like really neon pink um pulp and it was kind of like you know in the back of my mind during apple season you know just i just would go out and just look for cool apples and then learn about them and read about them and i would just kind of buy any ones that i hadn't heard of um and try them and then read about them. And it became really fun to learn about the stories behind each apple, um, comparing the differences between American apples and British apples and British apples having these really like prestigious sounding names and American apples having, you know, more of the two syllable names like pink pearl. Uh, and um, when I moved to New York, that also really exploded because of the green markets right. just, seen you know you can get like 30 apples from some mascot orchards on fridays at the new york green market and um more from other orchards on saturdays um and i think this whole process of wonder and discovery just constantly um gives me energy and i'm so fascinated by it and you know, apples are from, you know, Central Asia and they were brought up through the Silk Road and then were cultivated again in Europe and then in North America. And I think I'm really fascinated by this relationship that we have with them. You know, it's there's been this kind of um, cooperative coexistence uh, that we've had with you know, malice domestico, which is um, the botanical name for the eating apple. And mm -hmm. 
Um, it seems to come with us everywhere we go and we create these narratives around it, both in the stories of the people that, you know, maybe came across a wild seedling or, you know, purposefully cultivated an apple, um, to, you know, and then the narratives that come from the names that we give them. And then just sort of the experience of, of eating that apple, maybe not knowing those narratives yet, but your like personal experience of that apple and the way it makes you feel. Um, I find it fascinating. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I just feel like I've been like eating my way through the malice genus and <laughs> becoming fascinated with its endless diversity in the process. Um, yeah, it seems like such a great project for, you know, showcasing that diversity in the apple that I think people take for granted. Like everyone is like, you know, I don't like a, a red delicious. And, and <laughs> but like, yeah. that's kind of the only opinion people have about apple species, you know? Um, yeah. And how is the response? Like, it seems really great, but you know, have you, are, what are people, are people asking questions about apples? Like has, what has like been the response for this project? Yeah, I, I think most people, like, as you just pointed out, like most people don't really have an opinion of apples because of the commodity market. They're everywhere. You're never too far from an apple, but you're never too far from like five types of apples. And so you think that's all there is because it is this weirdly abundant crop. Um, and we have this sort of set amount of them. It sort of feels like that's all there is to know. Um, and so when you kind of discover that there's actually like thousands more and you know, they're not just red, green and yellow, but they're like, I mean, insane shapes, like some that look like candles, some that look like toads, some that are pink inside, some that are redder than a beet inside, some with this purple black skin, some that are, you know, metallic looking. Um, it's really fascinating. I don't know if there's like another word for this in another language, but it's this weird feeling where you, f you realize that you don't know everything about something you thought you knew everything right. there was to know about something that is so common. You got it. And all of a sudden you learn one thing and it just blows. You're like, wow, actually I know nothing about this thing. And there's so much more to know. And I, it's really exciting watching people, have that experience um maybe when they find my account or um read an article that i've been mentioned in or, or something like that and it's really it feels really good i feel like i'm kind of watching the same feeling that i still have now but really had when i first you know read about the heterozygous nature of apples and had that egremont russet apple or ate that pink pearl apple it's it's exciting watching people feel a sense of wonder for something that can feel so every day. Mm -hmm. I feel like that feels good. It, it reminds me that like, you know, nature and plants we, we eat remain beautiful, even when we sort of like try and um, control them through our systems. Um, people can still be fascinated by them um, and we can still, um, 
celebrate them and kind of reclaim back their diversity. This is something that people are actually interested in doing. Um, it feels really good. I love when people, people will like tag me when they buy like an Ashmead's kernel apple and it feels really good. Uh, yeah. uh, I like, I do want people to get into apples <laughs> and go to the farmer's market and buy apples from a local orchard, you know, and, you know, and take a chance on an apple that they hadn't tried before um, and see what they like and, and what they don't like. And, you know, specifically, you know, take a chance on these like uglier, quote unquote, rusted apples that just don't get carried at the supermarket because for some reason we'll accept russeting in pears, but we will not accept it in apples, which is very bizarre to me. <laughs> um, who made that decision? I don't know. Um, because rusting often indicates a more complex flavor, a sweeter flavor and nuttier flavor. Um, yeah, I, I've, the response has been overwhelming. I could have never imagined it as someone who was just, I just felt like I was living in my own world, taking photos of apples. And I wanted to ask you about the slug that you've been taking care of. Can you tell me the story of the slug? It's actually hilarious, Alicia, because <laughs> yesterday I'm so, this is like so embarrassing to admit. So um, I actually brought, so my parents have a, a beach place in Delaware and um, they really want to see me um, because we're probably, I don't think I'm fine for Christmas. Um, and this is like the safest way to see each other in these times. So um, I met them there and I was like terrified that, Alex G, my slug would die while I was gone. So I brought him there um, in this little like travel um, amphibian tank. And um, I left him there when I got back on Friday. Oh my God. I realized I left him. And I was like, and my parents left too. And it, where their place is, I mean, you, there's no way to get there without a car. It's just hours and hours away from any sort of public transport and I had like a meltdown anyway I convinced a friend to um drive me down to Delaware yesterday to retrieve Alex G in what was an eight hour excursion all told driving through <laughs> very interesting to do pre-election day like driving through all sorts of Americas right. you know going from New York City to to Delaware um and so he's back now, which I'm, he's alive and well and eating expensive Union Market mushrooms. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I was honestly losing my mind. I was like, there's no way. Like, I felt so horrible. You know, yeah. I was like, the irony of me being protective over him and then maybe him dying a slow death in Delaware because I forgot him. I just was like, no way is this happening. Like this. <laughs> I will move mountains. Um, and thanks to the generosity of a couple people, um, because another friend, uh, Lucy, helped me. She lent her car. Um, so it was uh, a wonderful moment of generosity, but also um, a classic, I think, insanity from me uh, <laughs> a particular brand of crazy um but i yeah i i came i kind of um got really into bugs this year 
Um, I, I've always loved bumblebees. I've always just found it to be like the teddy bears of the insects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading a lot about um, pollination and blossoms, mostly fruit blossoms, um, this spring. And I was just trying to spend as much time as I could um, around blossoms because I found it peaceful and hopeful uh, in the time. And um, watching bees and I would I bought books on bees and um even before that last apple season when I was at these um kind of research orchards um I would you know there'd be apples rotting on the ground and there'd be just like slugs eating them and I I just found it so adorable like uh and also like you know beautiful like the cycle of life is is very much in front of you at any moment in front of an apple tree. Um, and I think I just kind of developed, I always had a respect for bugs. Like I, I don't like killing them. Uh, I will try and free them. Uh, but I think I just, you know, for the first time really looked at, at their role in a very specific way and, and what they do for the environment. Um, and I was coming back from looking at this apple tree in Prospect Park uh, in, I think, early September, and I saw Alex G., this slug, just kind of moving across the sidewalk, and I was like, someone's going to step on this thing, even though it was late at night. So I kind of, like, my goal was to get down, get it on an apple, and then, you know, move it somewhere safe Mm -hmm. um, so it didn't get squashed, and... Um, honestly, it was just so cute. I just, (laughs) I was like, I kind of want to take it home for a little bit. (laughs) My intention was to take it home after that and then maybe release it back. But then I started reading about slugs and they live much longer, uh, in captivity than they do in the wild. Maybe that has something to do with the fact that people probably step on them sometimes, or I don't know if they survive winters very well. Um, but yeah, I just, I just brought him home and I just became really attached to it isn't it because they are hermaphrodites. And unfortunately, I am of the habit of gendering pets uh, that don't have genders. Um, I, I had all male pets as a kid. Uh-huh. I think it's just a bad habit. Uh, <laughs> but I also, I love the musician Alex G. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where his name comes from. But um I think, you know, knowing that slugs are, you know, you'll, you'll never be too far from a slug at an apple orchard, um, especially if you look on, on a rotting apple and it just felt kind of natural. Um, I had wanted to like recreate some things that I saw at orchards in the studio with kind of a, maybe this more fantastical memory of it that I have, um, and in a weird way, it felt like fate. Now, <laughs> like Alex G comes to the studio sometimes when I shoot, and um, I never like force it on anything. Yeah, it loves to just go on apples and then eat them and just sit on them. So that's very helpful for me. Um, and it eats a lot of decaying apples. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I um. I just find like, you know, bugs do work for us. Right. You know, there was, I forget this, there, this piece, but 
it was on bee labor and capitalism. Oh, wow. Uh, and someone had pointed out to me after I, I had taken some, some still lifes with, with bees and, and chamomile flowers um, this summer, and I was thinking about bees and capitalism. I was thinking about the labor that bees do to pollinate, you know, the trees that then make fruits that we eat and how important that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, in this, there's so, you know, technically nothing's supposed to be unaccounted for in capitalism, but many things are unaccounted right. for in capitalism as far as labor is concerned. And I just found that really interesting, which is like, wow, this is, you know, not only are we not counting the labor of many actual humans in this system uh, that are, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't know, willingly participating in it so much as this is what we did. This is what we got. But then we've, we've forced, well, not forced, but these other creatures that it, you know, live on the earth are also part of it (laughs) because we have, you know, took over so much of the environment that they just, you know, unknowingly are, are part of it. And that became really fascinating to me. Um, and it just kind of opened up this world of bugs and fruit that I like before was just something that was cute to me. Uh, and I liked the images of, and now those images have, I guess, more meaning to me and what they represent, um, and sort of like the process of flowering, fruiting, and then, you know, natural rotting and decay of fruit. Um, for you, is cooking a political act? Yeah, you know, I think if you'd asked me this question a couple years ago, I would have, may- I don't know if I would have said no, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. But it has become for me, um, I'm quite an inept cook, I will say, uh, but I do try. <laughs> and I love to try. Uh, but I think it is political in the ingredient choices that I make. Um, I really, especially in the last year, felt it very important to like go to the farmer's market and buy produce from there um, and support like a non-supermarket kind of system. Um, basically trying to eat outside of the commodity market as much as possible. And I think part of that comes as a natural extension from my interest in apples and fruit um, and their diversity and wanting to like enjoy that and take part in that rather than just select from, you know, the choices I have at a supermarket that have been selected for me. Um, And, you know, as we learn collectively as a culture more and more about our food supply chain i feel like one can't help but hopefully try and cook politically in the sense that you know no matter where you are on the economic spectrum there are choices um obviously they're much much harder if you're not wealthy Um, It can be really difficult to make ethical choices if you're not wealthy. You have to make a lot of sacrifices and your plate might even look meager. Um, And sometimes that feels really unfair, like personally. Um, I mean, it is unfair. Um, But it's become really important to me to support 
small businesses that I want to see, small farms that I want to see, um, and to play a role in a system that is unfortunately still shaped by the commodity market, which is so large and all-encompassing that you know it will shape things outside of it. But trying to participate in those things outside of it. Um, I have this friend, Benford, who introduced me to a lot of native fruits like wild persimmon um and i got into pawpaw and he makes cider and has made ciders from ap- wild apples that he's you know found on the sides of highways um and foraged and kind of really got me into this idea of like um anti-cap fruits anti-capitalist fruits anti-commodity fruits um and using them and celebrating them and introducing people to them. Um, like, I mean, just wild persimmon, for example, is, is so delicious. It's native um, to North America. It's been consumed by indigenous peoples well before us and, you know, mastodons. <laughs> and uh, it can't really be commodified because the way it you know it's really not ready until it falls off the tree when it's overripe and it's kind of gross before that it's really intensely tannic and kind of punishing uh but when it's really ready it's like it's amazing it feels like like this delicious custard pumpkiny treat um and it's free like there's trees in greenwood cemetery there's trees once you start to know how to look for wild fruit trees you kind of start seeing them everywhere and it's really incredible. And I know a lot of people are kind of scared to eat like wild fruit, which feels like, you know, maybe uh, a good survival skill. (laughs) Uh, But for the most part, a lot of this stuff, I think aside from berries, which one should be cautious of, but you know, wild apples are not poisonous and it feels really cool to like, and good to, to pick from what's there and what's free. Like, um, Benford and I have talked about like this idea of public fruit, like how cool it would be if parks had fruit trees. Um, Some of them do, but they're secret, you know, Um, like there's persimmons in Prospect Park. I haven't found them. I'm still looking Uh, (laughs) in Central Park as well. Um, But this idea that this can be for anyone because it should be for anyone. Um, But it's, it's like not right now. Uh, The fact that we can't, feed everyone well at this point in our advancement is just shocking uh and i just yeah i i feel like cooking is political and for me and that i'm constantly looking for ways to embrace what is public uh and also support people who are trying to make their very broken food supply chain that we have here better, you know, trying their hardest. And it's really difficult to do that. Um, And that feels increasingly important um, as I get older and as our very interesting political situation progresses. Um, Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.